0: to see what God's doing in other churches. And so uh, we'll be at Oak Hill Church over off, I think it's 164th, 178th, whatever it is, in May. Uh, Worshipping there that will be from 6 to 7. Bring your kids, bring everyone. Uh, so a lot of other churches will be there and stuff. Uh, and so I encourage you to come. Um, we're not all about us. We're about God's kingdom work. We're about God's, what God's doing. And we want to celebrate what God's doing in other churches just as much as ours. Their, their failure is not our success and vice versa. Uh, We are working together and all this sort of stuff. And so today, uh, I want to spend just a second praying for one of the other churches going to be with us uh, there. That's Gateway Community Church, which is just up the street at Sorghum uh, Mill and and MacArthur. Uh, Their pastor's name is Daryl Rannigan and uh, just an amazing guy. As a matter of fact... Uh, about four of us pastors from different churches this last Thursday got together and just spent time praying for each other's churches and praying about what God can do. And and so this morning I just want to take a second praying for them and their church. And so would you just do that with me? Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes and just spend a second just praying for them and and what God's doing in their church. So Father God, I love you so much. I thank you for Gateway. I thank you for just the cooperation we have with them and the fellowship we have with them. I, I thank you for how you've been working in their church, and you've been uh, just experiencing growth in that church, and they've been experiencing just life's being changed. And God, I pray you encourage the leadership. I pray you encourage Daryl. I pray you encourage Kieran, uh, their student minister. I pray you encourage all the others that are there and just remind them of the, the calling they have. I, I pray that they would just be faithful to what you've put in front of them. God, I pray that we would see salvations taking place there. I pray we would see revival taking place in their church. I pray we would see growth that the communities talking about. And God, I pray us as a church would get excited for them. God, we want to see them grow because your kingdom is bigger than just us. So encourage their leadership. Encourage their people. Help them to have a heart for their community. Help them to have a heart for Deer Creek. Help us to want to work together to reach Deer Creek, God. God, just inspire a passion to them for the gospel that just changes lives. So, God, whatever challenges they're going through right now, I pray you would just deal with those, take care of those. And, God, I pray we would hear through rumor and through from their own mouth the miracles of what you're doing in their church. God, I thank you for planting them here. I thank you for bringing them here. And I thank you that we can have community with them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, next week we'll do it again, pray for another church. But I, I just want you to know, I say this all the time, listen, we are not about just our church. I, I desire to see people in church. If you're a guest and you're here today, man, thank you so much for joining us today. But I, I want to see you in a church plugged in. And if you find that here, praise God. If not, let's help you find a church. They're a great and amazing church. We just believe people need to be involved in a body of believers being a part of the kingdom work. And there are some amazing churches around us that we could strongly encourage you to. Uh, but uh, anyways, that's, uh, that's all free. Now time for the sermon to jump into, jumping into 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we'll be. We've been walking through a series, uh, we've been walking through the whole book, we've been breaking it up in series in, in the letter of walking through 1 Corinthians. And for the past five weeks, we've been doing this one on life and liberty. And you say, well, what's that about? Well, it's about this idea that more or less, a, a lot of times we struggle about, well, what, what about my life and my rights as a believer, as a Christian, or even more so, let's say this, as an American, what, what are my rights? And don't infringe on my rights, don't infringe on my liberties, don't infringe on my way of life. And the problem is that runs right in contrast with the gospel, that we're supposed to give up our rights. As a matter of fact, Galatians 2.20, Paul would say this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son who gave himself for me. Like, I don't live anymore. I've given myself to God, and every right that I thought I have is, is now God's to use for his kingdom work. I've been free to whatever, but it doesn't mean I get to be free to do whatever, if that makes sense. And so that's what he's been going through, helping us understand these sort of things. And and this is the last week we wrap up, and it's been real repetitive, but it's meant to be that way because Paul's trying to hit home a point. He's trying to drive something home that we need to get to our head. As a matter of fact, just what we've been covering is about a fifth of his letter. And so it's a big deal. And he kind of wraps up this whole section right here in verses 23 through the very first of chapter 11. It's kind of bringing it all to a head Say, listen, let's just make sure you get this at a real practical level. And ultimately, it's kind of getting to this point of you need to know what hills are worth dying on. Do you know what that means, that term? I'm sure you heard, hills worth dying on. It's actually from an old war adage and stuff. You know, part of being a military success was getting the military high ground. And having high ground was honestly the difference between winning or losing a battle. And they have to make decisions, is this a hill literally worth charging and dying on to take back over? And some say, this is not a hill worth dying on. Now, now we've taken that language uh, for us to say, are these battles for me worth pursuing? As a matter of fact, when I Googled, what does this word mean? It says, it's an issue to pursue with wholehearted conviction and or single-minded focus with little to no regard to the cost. Have you ever been in a situation where you said, this is not a hill worth dying on? I don't know about you, but me and my marriage, we had a lot of those that seemed like earlier in marriage, everything was a hill worth dying on, and it seems like age and just war scars, if you will, got later in life saying, you know what, these are not hills worth dying on anymore. Like I'll never forget the, the war of 06 in our house, the cleaning war of 06, right after Emily and I got married. Um, I knew my wife, we were in college at OPU, and I knew for her, like she struggled to come home with the houses of meth, to relax, to stay and do everything else, and so the house, like that was the thing, it just would stress her out. Me, I don't care. Just spray some Febreze on it and you won't notice it's there. It's like the magic eraser. Now, now she's gone at work, you know, rocking it out at Sonic, bringing in the bucks for us, and she's car-hopping at Sonic's. And so I'm at home, I'm like, I'm going to clean the house for her. I'm going to surprise her because I know this is her love language. Weird love language, but it's hers. I'm going to show love. And so I spent, like, all day, what felt like all day for me, cleaning the house, doing all the sorts of work. I'm all excited. I'm like, man, I can't wait for her to get home. She comes home, and I'm, like, sitting the door. I'm like, surprise. And she's like, what? I'm like, I cleaned the house for you. She's like, you did. I mean, just the excitement. I mean, just, man, I like, I just spoke her love language. You know what I'm talking about? And she looks around. She goes, did you vacuum? I go, no. She's like, well, did you, did you, like, like, clean the toilets and, like, the sinks with window. I mean, all sorts of stuff. I go, no, I didn't, I didn't do that. She said, well, did you scrub the floors in the kitchen? Did you, did you dust the baseboards? What, what, did you do any of that? I said, no. She goes, what do you do? I said, well, I, I picked up this over here, and I picked up this over here, and I picked up that over here, and I cleaned. And she said this, which today caused, like, again, the war of 06. She goes, oh, you picked up. You didn't clean. Now, here's the thing. And both of our young wisdom, that was a moment for her to say, you know what, my husband's tried here, maybe this is not a hill worth dying on. Instead, she uses an opportunity to educate me on what it means to clean the house, which did not go well. And me, rather than taking that in love and say, you know what, this is an opportunity, I said, no, I deserve appreciation. Appreciate me, dad gummit. And so we started fighting, and it was all undone. And I went around, started throwing stuff. Pick up your own stuff then. See how you like it. It did not go well. Listen, I'm a Christian now, and God has saved me. There there are hills worth dying on and hills not worth dying on. And ultimately it always comes down to this. It always comes down to what do I value more, right? Do, do I value fill in the blank? more than fill in blank, right? And Paul's been talking about the gray areas in our life where we say, well, the scripture doesn't talk clearly about should I, should I not do this. And a lot of times for us, we say, well, it's my right. You don't have a right to tell me what it is. And the reality is that it ends up wounding and destroying a brother or sister in Christ. It ends up losing a witness. And Paul's saying, listen, you have to come to at some point and say, is this thing, more important than that person? Is this thing more important than their salvation? That, that's what Paul's getting at. He's clarifying the hills to die on. And so if you have 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let's read 23 through 11.1 1 in its entirety so we can understand the whole context of what saying, and then we'll unpack it. He says this. He says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. Like, no one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. He says, eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the believers invite you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, like, this food is from a sacrifice, like, do not eat it. Out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of their conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but, but the other person's. For, for why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? Like if I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So, so, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, every do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or Greeks uh, or the church of God. Just as I try also to please everyone and everything. Not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Now, in case you have not been a part of this discussion, Paul's specifically addressing meat, eating meat. You're like, what's the big deal? back in this time that they had meat that was offered and sacrificed to other gods, pagan gods as a form of worship. And they would take the meat that was sacrificed, and one of the ways they would use to fund their their stuff is they they would sell part of the meat that was offered as sacrifice in the market. And people would take it and eat it, and you often didn't know if the meat you ate was sacrificed to another god or not. And and so you say, well, why, why not just not eat the meat? Well, the problem was eating and drinking in the ancient world, sitting at someone's table and eating food, was the epicenter of relational interaction. It's where people would would trade worldviews It's where you had a seat at the table to talk to someone. So so for the people to say, listen, I'm not going to go and eat at someone's house because I don't know what they believe, I don't know what they've eaten, I don't know where this meat came from, would would almost sacrifice your ability to, to be a witness to the lost world. It would take you out of the lost world. But at the same time, to eat this meat that was sacrificed to other gods was completely against people who grew up in a Jewish faith home. Your entire life you've been taught this wrong and suddenly you see someone eating it and you're like, there's just something in me that says this is wrong. Or even new pagan converts who had come from this and were used to eating this in the temple and suddenly now they're eating the same meat but they're supposed to be worshiping God. Do you see where the disconnect and challenge comes in? And so they've had a huge issue on what to do. And Paul in chapter 8 talks about how our love for others should be greater than my liberties. And chapter 9 talks about salvation of others should be greater than my liberties. But here, I think he's really hitting home. He says this, ultimately, the gospel should be greater than my liberties. The gospel, and we'll unpack more what that means. So so what what is Paul getting at at a practical level in verse 23 through 30? Paul gets extremely practical right here. Paul starts in verse 23 through 24, giving us, I think, a practical algorithm about how to make decisions. A process for making decisions. Look what he says. He says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. It's a quote Paul actually used earlier in chapter 6, and it's a quote that they often use. It was in Corinth. It was a popular term. Like, everything's permissible. I'm free to do live and let die. Do whatever you want. And he uses it and says, listen, yes, yes, you might be able to do anything, but, but it's, that's not everything builds up. Not everything glorifies. Not everything does good. He, he gives two things. He talks about helping and building up. And so when it comes to making a decision, he's just asking this. He says, is it helping or hurting the gospel? He starts with that word beneficial there. He says everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. The word beneficial in the Greek means helpful or, or bringing people together. In other words, your first question you have to ask is this When I'm making a decision about something like meat, does it move others closer or farther from Jesus? What is it doing with other people when it comes to their walk with God? Is it affecting or hurt them? Not, not only do I gotta ask, is it beneficial, is it helpful? He says in the next part, says everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. Builds up is a Greek word means to construct, to edify, to strengthen. He's saying, is it building up or tearing down the work of the gospel? In other words, let me say it like this. Does it, does it deepen or destroy the faith of others? Let's take alcohol as an example. If I drank a beer up here, for some of you, you would have such a sacrifice of conscience. Like, that, that is wrong. Like, that, so, like, you should not do that. Others of you would like, I, there's no issue with this. Scripture doesn't clearly speak to this. Like, what do we do with this? And so I have to make decisions on what do I do with that. And notice in verse 24, he makes clear, like, it's not about me and my own convictions, about my own desires. It's for the other people. He says, no one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. And so in other words, when you make a decision, you have to ask, is is this helpful? Is this building up? Is this edifying? Is this, uh, or is it tearing down? Not me, but other people. And I love Paul in the next part, gives a practical example. says, okay, listen, let me give you a practical example of what this looks like. Look at verse 25 through 30. He starts in the first part. At 25, he gives an example of questionable food in the marketplace. He says, eat everything that is sold in the market without raising question for the sake of conscience. Why? Since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. He's talking about food that is questionable in the marketplace. If you're in the marketplace and you're walking around and you see meat there and you don't know whether it's been sacrificed, like don't, don't raise issues if there's not an issue there. If your conscience is clear, if you don't have any convictions, you say, listen, I know this meat is not, was offered, is not offered to a real God. I worship the one true God. He's like, listen, eat freely. Like if you're alone and you're conscious, eat freely. And his reasoning is in verse 26, he says, why? Since everything belongs to God every way and everything's for the glory of God. As a matter of fact, he quotes Psalms 24-1, which is a whole text about just God's glory. In other words, he's saying this, like if God gets glory, go for it. Go for it. If there's not an issue there, don't create issues issue are not there. Th- think about what raising a concern would happen. Imagine you're in the marketplace and you walk up and you look at a piece of meat and you're like, excuse me, uh, where has this meat been? Has it been at the temple? Oh, my goodness, guys, this meat's been at the temple. No one eat it. I mean, imagine the people who are at the temple you're trying to go and sell and purchase stuff from. What would it do to them? Uh, There's another one of those Christians, man. They always make a fool of themselves. Oh, they always cause all sorts of issues. He's like, listen, you by raising issues, you're going to ostracize yourself. You're going to ostracize these people. You're going to lose your witness in the process. In other words, if you're using the algorithm, he's asking this, is it helpful? Is it edifying? In this particular situation, it's kind of indifferent, right? It doesn't really affect anybody. And if your conscience is clear, he's like, listen, go for it. It's okay. If you know scripture has no bearing on this and don't talk about it and God's freed your conscience in this, don't go, go for it. So he gives one case situation. But he continues on. Look at verse 27. 27? 27 might be a better one. In 27 he talks about questionable meat at a guest house. Look what he says. He says, if any of the unbelievers, that's a key word right there, invites you over, in other words, their house, and you want to go, in other words, like you don't have any kind of convictions about, like I should not be going to this, is this is wrong. He says, go and what? Eat everything that is set before you without raising questions or the sake of concern. In this time and culture, to be invited to someone's house was deeply intimate. It was highly familial. So for someone to bring you to their house was, it was an extreme act of love and trust and, and there's something they're saying about you. That's, that's why Jesus over and over again, when you saw him in the New Testament, why were they calling him to task? He eats with what? Sinners and tax collectors. It was a deeply intimate thing. And so imagine you've been trying to witness to someone for a long time. And this unbeliever has, has grown merit, has grown trust with you. and says, hey, I, come to my house and eat. And boy, they, they slap out a big old T-bone steak right there. You don't know where that meat's been. Uh, imagine what would happen if you sat there and go, I'm, I'm sorry. I know you spent a lot of time. I know, but where's this from? Oh, the temple. I appreciate it, but I can't eat this. What would that do in that situation? What would that do to their conscience? What, what would be the issue? Like, evidently, this host doesn't have an issue with the meat. There's not an issue already on their conscience with the situation. What, what is he saying? Paul saying, don't create an issue that wasn't there in the first place. Don't do it. Like you would embarrass them. You would destroy your witness. In other words, if you're following Paul's algorithm, he's saying this. He's like, listen, if it, is it helpful? Is it edifying? Would it be helpful for me to eat in this situation? Would it be edifying for me to eat versus not eat? Yes, it would, wouldn't it? So what does he say? Eat it. Eat it. If you're there, don't destroy your witness. Don't destroy this person on the sake of something you know that means nothing. Are you following his argument? He gives a third one, he says in verse 28 through 29, he's given every practical example possible. In verse 28 9, he talks about meat that's been questioned by another pro- brother, a brother apparently. He says, but, remember buts always transition things. He says, but if someone says to you, this food is from sacrifice, do not eat it out of co- consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. He says, I don't mean your own conscience, but the other person's evidently, whoever's at this table, he's saying, if this person brings it up, what does that probably mean? It probably means it's an issue for them. And they're trying to stop you. And now, again, is this a hill worth dying on, to sit there and educate them about how stupid they are and how uneducated they are and how they realize that that meat means nothing? That, is that the time to do it? Pro- probably not. And so what he says, he says, listen, when it comes down to it, don't, don't let meat destroy the gospel's work in this person's life. It's not worth it. The the, the the meat is amoral why would you create an issue with it in other words if you're following his algorithm he's saying this is it helpful is it edifying what's the answer no and so as he says don't do it don't eat it don't eat it do do you see what's going on depending on where you're at and who you're with things might change from person to person to person but the problem is we need to learn to adapt for the gospel's work. This is where it leads back to what Paul says, I become all things to all people. Now, I'd love to give you an example that is very controversial today or talk about some of these things, but here's the thing. Me, by bringing it up, would very much just split the room because some of you would fall probably in one camp and go, I don't see anything wrong with it. And some of you would get very upset because you do see something wrong with it, Right? And by me doing just that alone would destroy even what Paul's saying here. So let me do an illustration to illustrate what he's talking about that I know just affects one person, and that's me. Do, do you know what this is? This is the fruit of Satan. I hate bananas. If you don't know me, I absolutely detest. I think they're disgusting. I can't stand the smell of it. I can't stand, I can't stand any of it. As a matter of fact, we were a staff meeting just this past week and Grant peels one right in front of me, grinning from ear to ear and just eating it right. I'm like, that is disgusting. I'm about to throw up. It, it, was, it was disgusting. I, I think they're gross. As a matter of fact, I remember in high school when I was dating Emily and I got in trouble, my mom, to allow me to go on a date with her uh, to get out of trouble, I made banana nut muffins and I had to eat one. And I came real close to saying the date's really not worth it. But I ate that down. Oh, it's so disgusting. Now, here's the thing. I detest it, and if you eat a banana, I might question your salvation and sanity. I'm just going to be honest. Just, I, just, I can't stand it. I actually Google searched the other day, and believe it or not, bananas are actually used as a form of worship in Hindu religion. They actually use it. One of their gogs actually is symbolized by a banana. And I actually went in college to a Hindu temple to go experience other uh, religions as part of one of our class things, and actually saw them use a banana in their worship. Further evidence that these are of Satan, guys. Don't eat it. Now as I say this out loud, I have pretty full confidence I'm the only one in the room that feels that way right now, right? You probably don't have time. You're probably trying to want to educate me now on the potassium. I don't want to hear it. It's disgusting, okay? But here's the thing. Paul's saying this. You, you know this is nothing, right? It's just a banana. To, to me, it's something. Now, as crazy as I sound, there might be other people in the room that are willing to speak up that are with me on this argument. Let's talk later because you have a friend in me, okay? But he's saying this. If you went to the supermarket and you saw a banana, don't, don't get there and go, guys, has this been used in the Hindu temple? Do you have an issue with bananas? Like, don't, don't do that. Why? Because 99% of the world probably has no issue with it. What do they say? Buy the banana, eat the banana, because you know what? It's nothing. It's a banana. Now, if you get invited to Grant's home, and he serves you a full feast of bananas, because obviously he has no issue with it, right? Don't sit there and go, now, Grant, do you have an issue with bananas? Has this been used in worship to other gods? No, what? Grant has no issue. Guess what? When you're in his house, what do you do? Eat the banana if you like it. Don't don't have any qualms about it. But if you're with me and we sit at a table and you pull out a banana and I start going, hey, I don't know if you know, but bananas are the spawn of Satan. Listen, here's the thing. As weird, as crazy as that may sound, He's saying, listen, don't don't sacrifice the gospel work for this. Like like is is this really greater than my salvation? Is 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 this truly greater than the gospel work God's doing with me? Because what would happen if you ate it and suddenly I began to say, man, I don't know if they're saved. I don't know what I know about God anymore. I'm so confused. You've you, you sacrificed so much for such a petty little thing. And, that, and that's what Paul's getting at. Like some of the things that we say our hills were dying on, Listen, it's a, it's a stinking banana. <laughs> it's not worth it. And, and that's what Paul's saying. Like, listen, don't, don't sacrifice this thing. All for the sake of this. Now, now, I love, he continues on in 29, the second part. He, he It's a weird transition. Because he goes and says this, he says, for, for why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? Like if I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something which I give thanks? Now, now here's the thing, here's where language is lost because in the original Greek it's written in the first person. In other words, most scholars believe that this is, this is Paul more or less giving a rhetorical response of what he thinks his audience is saying. In other words, he's, he's in, in guessing, like if I went and sat with Josiah, and Josiah doesn't know where we stand in the whole situation, it, it'd be like me saying, Josiah's going, well, why should I not eat bananas because Eric's dumb and crazy and thinks this is the spawn of Satan? Why should I do this? Why should I sacrifice my freedoms because of this? And he answers it right after that. His rebuttal is the very next thing. He says, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks, uh, or or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in in everything I do. Not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of so many, so that they may be saved. He's like, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul's response to these people who say, listen, that's not my problem is this. Listen, everything is kind of your problem in some ways. He's saying this, listen, his first part, he's saying, everything you do is either giving or taking away glory from God. He says, in everything you do, bring glory to God. Everything you do, it might seem insignificant, but everything you do in life, in some way, shape, or fashion, is either giving or taking away glory from God. It's never neutral. It's like a treadmill, Whether if you stop, you're moving backwards, you're always moving forward one, the, one way or another. And, and so he's saying this, listen, make sure everything you do is bringing glory to God. Take an account of everything going on. Let me, let me ask like this to help you practically process this. Listen. Do people seem to worship and glorify God more when you are around versus when you're not? When when people are around you, do they find themselves like, man, God is good. Thanks for sharing that. And I just see, I see God in you and God gets glorified. Or, Or do you notice when people get around you, the God talk seems to get squashed because you completely take God out of the picture. He's like, listen, everything you do, people in some way, shape, or form should see God in your life. Everything. Not only that, he says in everything, in everything you do, he says in the second part, verse 32 through 33, is moving people either closer to or farther from Jesus. Everything you do is either moving people closer to or farther from Jesus. He's like, do everything. Why? So that some might be saved. And so the question for you is is this, ultimately is this, is make sure you're moving people towards salvation. Like, don't be a stumbling block in people's life over something like this. It's just not worth it. Let me ask you like this. Are are you the reason people don't want anything to do with Jesus or Christianity? I have family in my life that I have come to the realization that I don't think I'm going to ever get to be the person that leads in Christ. But I don't ever want to be the reason they never will. I don't want to ever be the reason that when they're around another believer, they go, I don't want anything to do with you because of Eric. I don't want that Jesus. Or, or in your life, do they look around and say, you know, I see a lot of foolish Christians, but that person right there, man, there's something different about them. Because I love and respect them, I'll listen to what you have to say. Everything you do is moving people one way or another. The last thing he says is this right here in 11.1. He says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Take Christ. He says, everything you do is either painting a better or worse picture of Jesus. Everything you do is either painting a better or worse picture of Jesus. And and so in other words, make sure everything you do helps people get a better picture of who Jesus is. Most people will never pick up this book and read it. What they believe about God, what they believe about Jesus is what they see in me. And so automatically look at Eric, who's the Christian, and they go, that must be what Jesus is like. I'm getting a picture of who Jesus is. And what's the sad thing is many of us are painting an absolute terrible picture of Jesus. And they want nothing to do with him. Why? Because we're not imitating him well. We're not looking anything like Christ in our life. And that's our calling to do. Like, like, is your life a good interpretation of who Jesus is in scripture? Do you live your life in such a way that when they read this they can see it because they've seen it in you? Man, I, I I know I'm reading this, but I can almost I can almost visualize it because I, I've, I've seen the way Grant lives his life, and I just I, I he, he's lived it well. I can see it. Um, I have many people in my life like that. When I think, uh, when I think of serving, what it looked like to serve my, my dad is a guy who always comes. I can tell. And I think you know, in the most difficult times in my life, like I know, like that's what Jesus looks like because he's he's been there. Anytime I know, like hey God. Call him on the phone, hey, I need help. And in a moment's notice, he's there. And you know what the beauty is? When I start looking at Jesus through that lens, you know what happens? When I'm sitting here, God, I need you. It paints a beautiful picture of who he is because I because they've set a great example. What does it look like in your life? Okay, summarization of this whole thing, this whole past three chapters ultimately is this like the gospel, the work of the gospel in my life and other life and all around, should be greater than my liberties. Whatever freedom you think you have to do whatever, listen, it all needs to be sacrificed on the cross. You all need to come to a point and say, listen, Jesus, do what you want. You want me to give up bananas? I'll give up the bananas the rest of my life. You want me to give up this? I'll do it. Why? Because you are so much more. You freed me to do whatever, but I give up whatever for you. It comes down to the question of this. Do I value the gospel more than fill in the blank? I picked a scab before. I'm gonna pick it again. I, I saw that lost in COVID. <laughs> I, I told you. I still don't know what the right answer was: Mass, no mass. vaccine, no vaccine. I, I don't know, and I, I, I'm not. I'm not here to argue that. But so many people gave up any consideration of what other people needed and what the gospel. What would it do by in the gospel-making decision through this? And it came to man. It's my politics. It's my beliefs. It's my desires. It's what I want. And man. The world sees Christians going to die for this, and 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 I messed up in a lot of those decisions. And thank goodness for the redemptive power and the grace God shows us through the cross. Now, if you're a guest in here, and this is all foreign to you, and you're like, "I don't get, I don't get this. Why, why would I give up all? You're telling me I give up everything for what?" It's because of the gospel. It's because of what Jesus has done in our life. If you don't know what that means, it means this. The gospel means good news. And it means good news that there was bad news before. And the bad news is every single one of us has fallen short of God's standards. Whether you realize it or not. We've fallen short. As much as we try to get ourselves out of the hole, the more we dig. Guess what? The deeper we get. The deeper we get. And the only way we can get out It's by what Jesus did on the cross when he died on the cross for our sins and paved the way for us to get out of the hole. And he took our spot. And now as I stand in salvation, I stand free in Christ, I stand saved, and someday I get to stand before God and I have a relationship with God. Listen, I don't neglect all that's done for me as I leave Jesus in the hole. God has freed me now to make difference and allow other people to come and hear the same truth. In other words, where you are was where I was once at. And I do it all for you because I want you to come to understand the truth of who Jesus is. And my prayer here in a second, I'm going to offer you an opportunity to respond to that. Because the gospel is good. And so I'm going to ask everyone if you would do me this favor, close your eyes and bow your heads, not because there's something holy or sacred about that, just to remove distractions. I want to talk first to the people in here who, who are not sure who Jesus is. With your head bowed, eyes closed, I just want you to hear this truth. God loves you.